0: Before we get started with the show today, I want to spend a minute saying thank you to Nicole Slater. Nicole sent us a very generous donation of $50. She also sent us a very nice note that I'm going to read for you now. I love the Messy Studio podcast and want to thank Ross and Rebecca for sage art advice, knowledge, and inspiration. I love starting my day listening and putting to action your advice. Thank you for sharing this wealth of information to creatives like me. Thank you so much for your donation and your note, Nicole. If you would like your own shout out on the Messy Studio Podcast, stop by www.messystudiopodcast.com and click the donate button. You can set up a recurring monthly donation or a single time donation for literally any amount. Once again, that's messystudiopodcast.com and click the donate button. On with the show. Hello and welcome to the Messy Studio Podcast with Rebecca Kroll, the podcast at the intersection of art, travel, entrepreneurship, philosophy, and life in general. I am Ross Tickner, Rebecca's audio producer, podcast guru, and her son. On today's episode, we have an interview that Rebecca did with Santa Fe artist Paula Roland. Paula specializes in encaustic monotype and also teaches workshops. I will link to her websites, PaulaRoland.com and rollandworkshops.com, in the description for this episode. Without further ado, here's Rebecca Kroll.
1: Hello and welcome to the Messy Studio, New Mexico edition. I'm here today with Paula Roland in her studio in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, Paula works in encaustic painting and encaustic monotype, a process that she teaches and has explored for years. Um, and today we're going to talk about her career and how things develop for her and how she juggles a lot of stuff in her life. <laughs> so welcome, Paula. Thank you. I'm glad to glad that you're doing this. Thank yeah, you. it'll be fun. So, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> so I just uh, came into your new studio here. Um, you've only been here very short time, right? You about just, a month. Just recently moved. And it's a gorgeous space. And... Um, kind of a gallery area, and then the place for students. Um, and its it feels like it's going to be a very good space for you to work in. I mean, it just feels right, doesn't it? It does. I'm
2: really excited about it. Um, right now it's a little too clean because I've been doing <laughs> other things than working in it. Are you going to mess it up pretty soon? I can't wait to mess it up because <laughs> it really kind of aggravates me that it's so... Um, fanatically
1: clean and uh-huh. neat. Well, you you are the perfect guest then for the messy studio <laughs> podcast. So, uh, yeah, um, I I know what you mean. It's uh, my own studio in um, up near Dixon is being constructed as we speak, and I know it's going to be very clean, too clean for me for a little while. So, um, yeah, I'd like to start with a little bit about your um, your bio, like. Just briefly, where you were born, where you went to school, and that kind of thing.
2: I was born um, in Biloxi, Mississippi, right on the beach. And I grew up there. Uh, my parents moved there before I was born and uh, built a, a small tourist court that over the years evolved into a motel. Ooh. And um, I, there was a huge grounds Um with tons of trees and really exotic plants and then the beach across the street. Wow. So it, that had a huge huge influence on me.
1: I've always wondered what it was like to grow up right next to the sea. I mean that must've been amazing <laughs> to just be able to walk the beach and yeah, play there as a kid and
2: Yeah, I had I had pretty much free range to go there. Um and we also had a swimming pool. Oh yeah, because it's a tourist court right. hotel. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And, um, and like I said, lots of trees. It was very much like a park. It, oh. So And and so out the front door was this beautiful calm water and beach, as the Gulf is there because there's mm. there are barrier islands and so there's no surf. So that's one influence on me, this kind of minimal oh yeah, forever 40-mile-long shoreline, uh-huh. very flat. And then behind our house, which was way to the back of the property, there was a, a real woodsy, um, hardwood bottomland hmm. kind of area that I used to think was a swamp. <laughs> uh-huh. And so that... That really drew me more than the beach.
1: So you would go back there as a child I and could, yeah. walk around. I wasn't yeah. supposed to do some things that I did. Well, that's the good and, like, start start a
2: fire, and things like that. But it was great. And so from there, I went to New Orleans after high school for college at uh, St. Mary's Dominican College and. Um, after college, uh, I, I worked as a graphic artist for a few years and then I began teaching. I did some high school teaching and um, then I went and got an MFA from the University of New Orleans and uh, did a little more teaching. I've taught every age level imaginable really then i moved t- to santa fe for a teaching job at a college small uh, college for native americans and art school and i taught there for 7 years uh, i taught painting and drawing as full time faculty and then then i got laid off from that job and mm-hmm. that's really where my life as an artist working in encaustic and teaching workshops began and and how old were you at that point when that happened? I was in my probably mid-40s, late yeah. 40s. And so mm-hmm. I didn't really want to move for another teaching job. Yeah, The school um, temporarily closed. They lost mm-hmm. a lot of funding. Mm-hmm. So I stayed in Santa Fe and started, uh, you know, I just had this idea that I should teach encaustic monotypes, which had never been taught. Uh, on a large scale, or other than um, Dorothy Gardner, who's the person who sort of invented it, uh-huh. and she never really taught much—I uh, mean, not much. So I developed a curriculum for it and uh,
1: started teaching workshops. In, yeah, in the late nineties. So we should probably explain a little bit about what an encaustic monotype is.
2: <laughs> sure. Um, well, most people know what a monotype is uh, of some type. Um, it's a painting, essentially, that's done onto a plate, and usually with oil-based or coo inks or whatever people are using nowadays. And then that plate is one, run through a press normally with paper on top, and it offsets the image to the paper and it's a one-of-a-kind image. There may be something, some paint left on the plate from which you could make another print, which is called a ghost print, but it would it's quite a bit different. Well, um, so that's regular or traditional monotype printing. What I do is I, because encaustic needs heat, I work on a heated pa- palette. The uh, hot box that I also developed and at one time um, manufactured. So it lights up with it heats up with light bulbs. Mm-hmm. It's it's heated by light bulbs which are encased in a in a box of wood wooden box it, with a anodized aluminum plate on top. So you heat up the the box, and the plate heats up, of course. So then you can take encaustic in solid form, like a crayon or a big chunk or whatever, and and touch it to the plate and draw an image Mm. on there because the wax melts immediately. It'd be very fluid then, wouldn't it? It is very fluid, and um, that's what I like about it. But I've also spent a lot of time trying to to uh, understand the variables and control it so oh, yeah. that I can have I can somewhat predict what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And um, so anyway, you don't need a press for this yeah. process. You simply lay the paper, an absorbent paper, on top of the metal plate it absorbs the wax and you lift it off of that and
1: sometimes get a ghost, but usually not. And can you um, or do you repeatedly put the paper down again to get other layers or is it sort of a one-time thing? Because that would melt at all if you put it back.
2: Yeah, uh, no, it, it really doesn't melt off of the paper mm-hmm. because it's within the paper. It's not a buildup on mm. the surface. Oh, I see,
1: yeah. It's kind of stained the paper or gone into
2: the fibers it's of the It's gone into the fibers of the paper. At some point, though, the paper, you can overprint to answer your question. You can lay the paper back down, make another image, lay the paper mm-hmm. back down, and you can work on the back, you can work on the front of the paper. And, oh, But once the paper becomes saturated, then... Um, the wax will sit on the surface and you can no longer lay it down on the heat. It will melt off, mm-hmm. but it won't build up very heavily.
1: But um, So when, a lot of your work or every piece I've seen of yours is, is an abstract image. Um, when people come to your workshops, do they also work in an abstract way or can they work sometimes do they work with imagery? Some do. it it's uh, it
2: tends toward abstraction this mm-hmm. process does. And so it's a great way for people to loosen up if yes. they want to become more abstract. You can have an image and many people do and um, it, it it takes some pain attention. Yeah. to detail and, and
1: the variables once again. And how long would you say it took from the time you first started playing around with this idea uh, to where you felt you had um, the kind of control that you wanted? And I understand there's aspects of it that are interesting because they're not totally uh, predictable, which is true of any type of monotype. People love the right. the surprise factor when they do this. But as you say, you want some. You know, you want some control. You want to know that you can express what you want to express. So, over the years, or however long, how how long did it take you to sort of get to the point of, I know this inside and out. Um, I can teach it. I can, you know, you have a whole total grip on it. And, and I know it's an ongoing, lifelong thing as well. <laughs> <That's> exactly what <laughs> as, I was as say. I'm saying this, I'm thinking, well, do we ever get to that point? But you know, that sort of confidence and. Um, in it, basically, because well, I, it, you know, I, I guess the reason I'm asking is to to say these type of things where you're developing it. Nobody's teaching you, and you you're trying to figure this out. It takes a while. It does take a while, but um, the
2: process itself is very um, rewarding. And it rewarded me with different bodies of work. so hmm. pretty early on, I was able to do pieces and students are able to do pieces that are respectable. They may not be what they expected them to be, mm-hmm. but um, they begin to appreciate you know whatever look they're getting and they're able to to... Control it to a point, but it takes time. But for me, it rewarded me in that every time I'd become pretty well proficient with what I was doing, I had, and and therefore become a little bored, I would find <laughs> another way to push it. Yes. And so that's what I've been able to do the whole time is find ways that it could be an installation or backlit or layered using the translucency or transparency mm. of the paper or the translucency of the wax. It can be cut and
1: hung in different ways. Yeah, I saw an image on your website of a uh, installation that was backlit, right? It was beautiful. The big green one. Yeah.
2: It's called Disappear. It's... Um, Gee, I forgot how big it is, but it's big. And some of your work is, we should say,
1: pretty large.
2: Yeah, yeah I, I like working large because I like that movement. I, mm-hmm. I seem to need to yeah. enjoy moving um, with the work, with the with the paint.
1: So um,
2: what was the question?
1: <laughs> well, you know, I yeah, I think you answered it. I mean, I was getting at that idea, which you expressed really well, is that you get... You know, there's, there's different levels that we explore and we get to one point and you, you said you get a little bored. I know what you mean. I mean, it's, you know how to do something. Um, you could stop there and you could do that same thing for years, but you don't. You say, yeah. what's next? What else can I do with the form, with the actual process? And I'm sure that your imagery also changes and evolves along with it. So there's this nice, cycle of maybe being pushed by ideas. How do I figure out how to do this? Or maybe something pops up in the process that you say, I really like that. Mm-hmm. I want to, how did I do it? I want to do more of it.
2: And what's, what's been good for me is, um, and good for the students is that these different things that I learn or develop or develop, or or um, ways of working that evolve for me, I'm able to pass that on to mm-hmm. them,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and um, and then of course as a teacher, you you learn things from students, and so you definitely do. <laughs> so every now and then, somebody does something, I'm like, wow, how'd you do that? Right. Maybe I mean, not believe me, you can't copy anybody in this process anyway. But if it's uh, If it's something worth sharing, you know, Mm -hmm. share it.
1: I know uh, what you mean. I see that in my own workshop sometimes, and it's it's uh, exciting, you know. When and and students are learning from each other as well as from you. And um, I uh, took a look at your teaching schedule, and it is intense. Mm -hmm. um, Like every month, right? Yeah, it looks like you take some time off in the winter, maybe, but I I do because
2: it's not that conducive to travel mm-hmm. for people to come here yeah. and take a workshop so that this time of year is usually my um, time to to kind of regroup and get back in the studio and, and uh, yeah. see what I'm going to do for the the next year in a way uh-huh. uh, Yeah. begin to uh, find a, a
1: where I am in my work. And your teaching probably evolves with Things you're working on, that's kind of natural, right? You discover something, you start working that's with something, and then that's something you can share.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. Um, yeah. That, that new things go back to the students, new ideas, new materials. Or I start combining uh, materials that I had used over time before encaustic, such as graphite, powdered graphite, oh. I worked with for years, both in painting. And um, in drawing mm. uh, large uh, graphite pieces. So I was able to um, find something that could be done <laughs> with graphite. Oh. And, that, and I that was the carbon
1: class carbon mashup. So class. do you put the the carbon and the encaustic medium on the hot plate together? Is that how it works? Well, there's many ways
2: you can actually make paint out of it which i do i I mix the powder with encaustic paint uh, or i'm sorry with encaustic medium just plain beeswax with resin and um and so then it's a paint you can paint it on or you can let it cool Mm -hmm. in a mold and use it on the hot box make a stick out of it a big crayon and uh, you can mix it on the plate as you're looking at this
1: piece. Yeah, there's a piece on the wall we're looking at right now. I just realized, oh, that must be one of the things that you're talking about. Um, and it has, it resembles somewhat uh, a drawing. I mean, you you make yeah. that association with the with the graphite, but there's something else about it too. Yeah. It's it's obviously a different process.
2: Yeah, this particular graphite encaustic had um, some silver. Metallic silver powder uh-huh. uh, pigment uh, mixed with it. I do that a lot. Yeah. So it can be used on a hot, on the hot box as a print, but the other thing I I enjoy about it is that you can take an encaustic surface and uh, you can use that powdered graphite dry. You can rub it on. You can, and it sticks to the wax and becomes silvery, Mm. or you can make it into a liquid uh, that's applied to the surface like paint, and you can um, even transfer graphite drawings onto the wax
1: there's just many just, ways. Yeah, it I mean, you can work. So you with start. It. You started with this idea, like, what can I do with graphite powder, and it just whole world opens up. And yeah, I think it's. Um, First, I did it in my own work. Uh huh. And then you're, I eventually, you're it, yeah, know. started teaching. And it's just, I, I just think it's, um, it's exciting to hear how a particular approach, and in a way, it's very simple. You started out saying, "This is what an encaustic monotype is." And all the different um, ways that you've explored it um, over the years is, you know, it's inspiring. Um, As far as the actual imagery of your work, are there themes that you can point to? I know you mentioned some early influences of minimalism. um, And maybe also some, you mentioned this forest or whatever uh, that was also in your childhood home. So that dense kind of patterning or density of surface. Yes, yeah, so, uh, a chaotic, dense surface. Because mm-hmm, I see, noticed that in some of the work as well.
2: Yes, those are the two streams, the, okay. the minimal from the, the beach area and, uh-huh. and the wildness from
1: this other area. And, I mean, they, they're still there. How interesting that, you know, these things that affect us when we're impressionable little kids, you know, <laughs> they, they they come through over and over over the years. It's pretty amazing. And, um, and hurricanes
2: as well, because we were constantly oh. having hurricane watches, you know, or, or warnings. And so that was very was exciting. Was that, that was so scary? It, it was scary, but you got out of school, you got to do different things, you got to... A <laughs> little excitement it, there. It was a lot of excitement. And the thing was, that the whole time I was growing up, uh, a, a bad storm did not hit.
1: It was afterwards. Oh, okay, so it was always just kind of a yeah, get yeah. out of school and yeah, yeah, and uh, enjoy later, the wildness.
2: Actually, I remember visiting my parents out in uh, while I was in college, and it was immediately after Hurricane Camille, and it, it, they were sort of stranded there and. My sister, one of my sisters, and I went to you know help, but we couldn't reach them. There was no way of knowing. But anyway, we Mm -hmm. we had to take this secure, I can't say that word, this roundabout route to get to the coast, and eventually we arrived to find the beach highway had been bulldozed of the debris. So they just bulldozed it to the side so it was a wall of debris (laughs) oh my gosh that we were traveling through and um I was totally amazed because and that was my influence to abstraction because you could see parts of things you could say oh there's a table oh there's a tree branch oh there's the
1: what a bizarre experience it was
2: bizarre and also fascinating yeah so wow so I did hurricanes for a while. <laughs> Many, I mean, that really some of my first work, yeah, those large paintings in there were hurricanes and
1: just a mashup of all kinds of things. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. The kind of
1: oh, that's really. I mean, left. it creates an interesting visual when mm-hmm. you're talking about it, um, and then sad and tragic and and weird.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And, and to experience was, that as a child when you're very. You know, impressionable. It must have been something. Um, and I I wonder, you know, I mean, it sounds like you were kind of often, there was a sense of danger where you lived, even if on some level you knew that that was danger, even if sometimes it was kind of fun. But, um, you know, interesting way of growing up. And I wonder now I'm playing armchair, whatever, but the, the ability to work with chaos in your work, and the ability to have these unexpected things happening, and embrace them, and what am I going to do with them? Uh, I wonder if there's some kind of thread there, you know. Also, I mean, the, the calmness and the, the tranquility as as the opposite of that. It seems very deeply felt.
2: Yes, I, I think um, I think it was a big influence. Yeah, and still is yeah. in some ways. Yeah. And, and it also fed into other um, forms of influence over the years even after I moved here um, that weather and and chaos uh, showed up in in an interest in in science mm. in um you know the, there's the santa fe institute here which is a sort of a chaos theory think tank so and and there's a heightened spirituality in Mm -hmm. santa fe in the area of um uh, different religions buddhism Mm -hmm. and and catholicism and so forth and um so these areas of interest for me began to to form together and move into my work in different ways or Mm. inspire me in different ways. But you know, the root was always the the natural world and and the solace I found in it and and the excitement. Yeah. So interesting. That's that's how my work has evolved in Santa Fe is more through these other
1: elements that I was introduced to. There's so many I you know we've done a couple of podcasts and and it's something about uh your sor- about source material personal voice and then um, something that comes up when you teach you know how do people find this way especially you know in abstraction how do you bring meaning to to it how do you pull from these different sources so um, yeah it's um, it's interesting to hear about this mix of things. It's always been kind of my, um, my belief that if you have a number of different sources that are mixing up, interacting, sparking off each other, that this leads to your personal work. Because if it's only one idea, it's (laughs) sort of, you know, pretty straightforward. One trick pony, no. (laughs) Yeah. But you start getting all these different things uh, interacting and it, it can feed you for a, your lifetime and, um, and you don't run out because there's always something. Thank goodness. Um, <laughs> so not that we don't have little slumps, you know, but, uh, basically you've got a, a lot to work with. So, um, and in the time left, I'd like to talk also about, I guess, some sort of practical things because one of the reasons that um, I wanted to interview you besides your work and everything I know about you was this podcast we did a while back about um, side hustles and things people do to make money in addition to working with galleries and so on. And um, you, you did develop this product, the Hot Box, for a specific reason because it was what you used in your work. And so if your students come to take this from you, And they want to continue with this. They have to have their own hot box. (laughs) It's kind of like necessity that you did this. Um, But I also thought in that podcast, it was interesting because we just did this by email and you told me some things about it, Um, that it really was a very side thing. Like you didn't want to be known as the person who invented this. The hot box. The hot box. Yeah, whatever, you know, because, you know, obviously have a lot more going on than that. Uh, and so eventually you you sold it to another company or I
2: did uh, to the Ventafume company. Yes. They make um, exhaust fans for kilns. They also have vent kiln. Ventafume is for uh, encaustic right. painting and printmaking and it's a little portable fan that um, ducks out you know you can duck it out a wall or mm-hmm. however but it's a small thing and he uh jay who runs that company um like the idea of having the hot box because then he has two products mm-hmm. that bring Very in cost- plastic artists yeah. to his website so. so
1: but what was i mean you you had this idea did you at what point did you sort of say, I don't wanna go any deeper into this? It's taking up too much of my time or what what was it? I griped about it all along.
2: <laughs> I don't
1: I don't yeah, it's just as years
2: it got more complex. Yeah. Got more expensive. People you know, the first ones I was able to have made for a hundred dollars uh-huh. or less, you know. So I could sell them for two hundred dollars, but then they got more complicated. There were safety features. There were, you know, I had better carpenters, better you know uh, builder, and so forth. And and it, and then there's the packing and shipping and. All and of, you were doing all that by yourself. I had a friend. Eventually, I eventually I had a friend who did the packing and shipping. And before that, there was a time that I'd bring them to a pack and ship place. But yeah, you know that that. The other the other part of the misery of it was, you know, they'd arrive, sometimes arrive
1: damaged. Oh yeah, and or, it's running you know. a. I mean, uh, this business world, like all of a sudden, you're saying, wait, I'm running a company that I did not envision myself involved yeah. in, and. Um, taking deciding to step back from that and you know I still love the, the hot box I mean and and people
2: it, it's really uh, the people who use it use it continually And they use it with painting and printmaking yes so it, it it's a great tool it's just it's the something manufacturing it, of it that wasn't right. so much fun but, you know I
1: guess you know it feels good that you contributed that to the encaustic world and yeah yeah yeah, yeah, um, s- these side hustles are, you know, they serve a purpose, but when they stop serving the purpose, then you <laughs> think of something else. And, but teaching is something you've done a long time now, yeah. uh, and that's definitely um, a very big project. I it think. is, and, and I'm
2: fortunate in the sense that I've all, the jobs I've done all, have always related to art. Whether teaching oh, or something really else. always yeah. always, I never oh. waited tables. <laughs> Thank goodness, I would be terrible at it, and, and and different things like that. I'd never had, and I never did. And so I think that, that that's important. I understand that there's two ways of looking at it. That you can have a, a a job that at night you don't have to think about,
1: mm-hmm. and
2: that's a good thing. But yes. the other way is I'm also if if I I'm always involved in in art in what I do mm-hmm. as my side hustle then um I'm reinforcing my art and my
1: connections. Yes. And um and you I mean you already mentioned that you you learn as an instructor. You learn it it is very stimulating. I mean you you're always I I often uh, leave a workshop fired up to get back to my own work, not only because I've been away from it for a few days, but because there's something very uh, liberating about the way that um, students might be working Mm -hmm. in a way. Like maybe for me, they're using a lot of bright color or something, which I don't tend to do in my work. So I go back to my own studio and I think, wow, you know, maybe I could liven up the palette a little bit. So, (laughs) you know, but you get these little sparks from people and, and beginners who are, you know, don't maybe have a lot of um, ways of working, they're Mm -hmm. just experimenting, uh, can be exciting to see
2: that. And even just doing the demos, because when I do demos, it's, you know, it's fast and furious. I don't try to make art, but sometimes... They come out really well, and then that gives me an idea for something yeah. else. It's the it's the amount
1: of letting go that you can do. Yeah, it's um, that that whole thing of that balance of spontaneity and control. When you're demoing, you have an idea that you want to convey, but you're not necessarily um, thinking, "Is this making a good painting?" Right. Maybe you're demoing a technique, or here's how I layer stuff, or whatever it is. Uh, and then some part of you manages to produce this rather nice painting. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> yeah, then of course, some of them are awful in my experience, but, but you know, it doesn't it, matter.
2: It's what I tell students is that you, ha- you can't re- recreate the piece. You can't do the good thing, right. that, you know, exactly, but you can try to be in the same mental space ah. and have the a similar approach, you know, of abandonment or focus or, or whatever it is that created that yeah. first piece. That's you a, have
1: to experience the everything around it similarly. That's a, that's a really good point. A good way of saying it. I mean, oftentimes when people see small quick things, they wonder are you are you going to recreate this on a bigger scale or is this something in, and I always say well no but I the way that you put that really makes sense because yeah. we, we are often striving for that point of um I don't know it's such a balancing act of what, you know how how present you are in your mind and how much it's just intuitive and all those things uh and they they sneak up on you yeah <laughs> in yeah. a good way yeah. um so you as I mentioned, you're teaching like once a month, and not not always here. You travel, right? Well, that was something I was going to say. I used to travel a bit
2: more. Um, i'm I came to the point where, why am I doing this? I have everything I need here. Mm-hmm. And the thing is I, if I'm teaching monotypes. Yeah, I need a place that has hot boxes because I'm no longer packing them and shipping them mm-hmm. for some of the reasons I mentioned. Yes, so the the venue has to have the hot boxes. Therefore, I, right now I'm only traveling to Chicago to teach in Jeff Hurst's oh, Studio. Yeah, yeah. and um, and occasionally to the conference in, yes. in uh, Provincetown. Yeah, so I hope to get back there soon. I did go there for. I don't know, nine or two. Are you ten going years. In this year or no? I'm not. No. I'm not. I uh, in the past couple of years I've been recovering from a bad knee, a oh, knee replacement. Yeah. And uh, but anyway, I, I'm not going this year, but I do yeah. plan to go another time.
1: Well and and this you know there comes a time when you wanna slow down. I mean, I'm feeling it and just take a little more time with your own work and Mm -hmm. whatever. So, um, And I guess before we we close, because we're getting near the end, um, do you have any workshops uh, coming up that you'd like to mention?
2: Well, as a matter of fact. Yes. (laughs) I do.
1: Yeah, I have.
2: um, There's one in February coming up. It's called uh, Dipped and Saturated. And these are all on rolandworkshops.com. R-O-L-A-N-D. Yeah, and we'll put the website on okay. the podcast thing. So Dipped and Saturated came out of some work I did for myself, my, my own work where mm-hmm. I was dipping paper in white wax and basically using that irregular uh, paper with coated in wax as a, a surface, as a substrate. So this is the first time I'll be teaching it and that's here in Santa Fe. Yeah. Yeah, I don't go to Chicago until April. Okay. So dipped and saturated, and that's mid-February and then mid-March I ha- um, I'm teaching a two this is a little different. I changed up all my workshops this year. Oh. And um, usually I'll teach a, a two to four day painting and encaustic and a four-day printmaking and so forth. This time I'm going to mix the painting two days and the printmaking two days, because I've found some other ways that I want to introduce the the prints and the work on the hot box as a way to design paintings. So oh. I have these exercises that generate some interesting pieces that can be scaled up and simplified or colored or whatever, right. and and be used as a guide in designing a painting. Oh, that's really interesting. So it's one workshop with these two different components. Yeah, oh, and there'll good. be plenty of time for people also to, you know, experiment on their own without yeah. me giving them this oh, assignment. That's good. But um, I have more mentoring projects this year. Uh, I'm doing... Short mentoring and also have uh, a five-day retreat, special oh. projects in the studio where a, a, a mentee can, someone who's worked with me before can come into the studio mm. and work all week and I'll critique them one or two times a day and mm-hmm. they have everything they need. Oh, and sounds great. It is. It's yeah. really like um, a residency or something. Oh, for yeah, people. yeah and um i've even added cold wax have you now <laughs> to mixed media monotypes oh which is a, a yeah i found that working on a monotype um can be a can produce a um substrate can yes. produce an image on which you can apply Cold wax. Oh, medium. that's exciting! And yeah, I'm using um, Hella Evans cold wax. With, that's pigmented, but it doesn't have oil, so oh, I see. So I don't have to use quote unquote oil paper. I can use any kind of uh, print paper, and as long as well, the the, the paper doesn't have to be entirely covered.
1: Right, with wax
2: because I have no there's no oil in it. Oh. Another innovation. (laughs) Right, right. So it just keeps going, and that's,
1: again, Um, what interests me. Well, your workshops sound really varied and interesting, and um, I hope people listening will take note if if this sounds like um, a good idea. And you get to come to Santa Fe, and this is a wonderful city for artists to visit. And so I hope uh, that goes well. And thank you so much for this conversation. It was really interesting. Well, thanks. I enjoyed it too. All right. Bye now.
0: Well, that about wraps up this episode of The Messy Studio. You can find The Messy Studio on Facebook as well as public profiles for both Rebecca Kroll and myself, Ross Tickner. Please make sure to check out squeegeepress.com as well as www.rebeccakroll.com and sign up for the email list to stay up to date on events, book signings, and openings. Please subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, or Stitcher, and leave us a rating and a review. Remember to share the show with friends and family and anyone who you think will enjoy it. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week with more art and entertainment. In the meantime, embrace your creative space, messy or otherwise.
1: Thanks, everybody.